This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Well, it's going to be an interesting How to Be 60 this week. We've got the chief instructor from Celebrity SES, Billy Billingham. And he doesn't mince his words on that show. Shut up, you muppet! But it didn't take long to discover another Billy underneath. It's all duck syndrome. On the top of the water, you look all cool and calm and collective. Inside, my heart's racing, my head's gone. Jesus Christ, I almost want to cry for this person. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Hello, it is How To Be 60 time again with me, Kay Adams, and her, the gently pickled Karen McKenzie. Gently pickled? Um, is that my strawberry nose? Is it looking a bit, you know when you drink a lot, you get a bit pickled Have you been drinking a lot? No. Well, I think at the thought of coming back here to see you for a while. No, not at all. God, I'm so not? looking. Kay, I've not been drinking. Hang on. No, you can't smell it. <laughs> I was just about to say to you, actually, you've really taken the wind out myself. Oh, that's rubbish. No, no, I was just about to say that I think I might actually have missed you a little bit. Missed me? Well, Miss me? Well, <laughs> Hang on, yeah. what are you after? No, Jesus Christ, you make it very difficult, don't you? Because, you know, obviously these podcasts go out weekly, but we record them in batches, don't yeah. we? Just depending on your busy schedule. I, I mean, that's correct. Brambles, courgettes, <laughs> mushrooms, whatever the fuck you're picking. Um, and so I haven't actually seen you for a while, so I was actually looking forward to a dose of Mad Cat McKenzie. Oh, my God. Well, well, it's nice to see you too, Kay. Yeah, so you sort of unsettled me. How, how are things in the twilight zone? <laughs> We've had COVID, so that took us. St- oh God, We've yeah, had the COVID, we had the COVID, oh and God. so um, had to cancel my jury duty. This is the third time it's had to cancel. Oh my God, they're on me. So I mean, to the next honest, time we don't want you deciding the fate of anyone, do we? I think it's really for the Listen, best. It's not the high courts, the sheriff courts. So I could go with that. I could just imagine you. It doesn't look like a murderer to me. Yeah, not that I'm judgmental at all. <laughs> oh my God, the thought of you I on a know, jury. It's quite scary isn't it it is it really is yeah anyway so it's been cancelled again for a third time so they're on it so all yeah. right how about the nordic walking are you still doing that oh yeah yeah yeah. i was here on saturday however oh my god you get so quickly out of practice you're of walking any exercise sticks, for god's sake the covid took care of that and you're running up hills because she's introduced some flaming you're running up hills cardio. yes it's quite hard actually <laughs> and I was like <gasps> my breathing was so laboured <gasps> at the top so I think even Alison took pity on me and said right just take it easy take it easy so um, I want to I, come and see this I, I mean I'm I gonna, know you'll I'm never come along so <laughs> for you running up hill with two bloody sticks <laughs> not just me there were nine of us I think, you know, actually, you should have marched in here with your sticks today because that would really have impressed our guest, who's Billy Billingham, you know, reached the highest rank of the SAS, head honcho of celebrity SAS. I tell you, if you'd come in here with your Nordic poles, he would have sat up and took notice. I think he'd have thought, what the hell is that woman doing there? Or how high, how big is that house when she's used her Nordic walking poles to get up the stairs, up the woodlice laden stairs? But we'll not go on about that. I tell you, actually, do you know what? 
what I did notice that. Well, thank you. No, I did know. I'll give you that. Did you brush them today? Yes, before you came. How many were it on wasn't, it? No, it wasn't for you. That wasn't for you. It was for Billy because you know what military people are like. They're awful particular. Well, do you know what? They make their bed in the morning and all that shit. Oh my god! You've probably got nothing in common. No, I don't no. think so. It's going no. to be—it's going to be a rough hour. What I might have, well, what? not really, but donkeys years ago, way back in the day, I did a parachute jump. <gasps> I did a parachute jump. It was a present from my then husband, who obviously hated you. Clearly, and you to die. <laughs> the old insurance life insurance thing now on me. <laughs> and I remember. Um, there wasn't much training at all. It was a morning okay. near Stirling. <laughs> and it was near this place called Keneal. Because I remember thinking, Keneal, that's really apt. And up we went, me and another person, into the plane. And I thought you sort of sat at the he edge of dead. this no door. But you actually had to clamber out onto what felt like a wing that would had this oh kind of... I know, and hang on. And then it was like, go. And then I heard it again, go. And I thought, God, okay, push yourself Oof. off. Forgot to do my 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 check canopy. So I never checked that my chute was open. <laughs> and then I kind of thought, oh, Christ. And then you sort of go Are up you the on way. your own? I was on my own, yeah. But it was a static line, which means that the canopy opens automatically because clearly they cannot trust anybody that's on a first and probably up to a tenth jump to open, to be responsible enough to open the canopy. So I didn't open the canopy, it opened, um, but you've got to check. It Fuck opened automatically. Hell. And then once I sort of kind of like, whew, relaxed, I'm looking, right, where's this cross that you're supposed to be aiming for? <laughs> Couldn't see anything. The old rugged Pulled cross. Pulled the string, still no cross. And then before you know it, you've hit the ground. And this bloody canopy's over me and my ankle was aching because I forgot Did to land. Did you look like a right fanny? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> all I heard was this, hello, hello. And I thought, what's that? Pulls the canopy up. And this farmer's saying, or this farmer's wife is saying, hey, all right. And I was like, yes. And the, the farmer said, well, get out of there then, get out of there. So clearly I'd landed on his field, nowhere near the, nowhere near the cross. But the worst of it was, the person that jumped before me, or maybe after me, I think straddled or, or got caught in the electricity cables. Oh, no. By the but time we die. got back to the, <laughs> by the time we got back to the, somebody to come and pick me up, um, the electricity was off in the village. Hydroboard lorries, <laughs> they were putting it back on again, and it got into the national newspaper the next day. <laughs> no, not enough training. What was the headline? Oh, Christ knows. Some at least I don't. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm but my God, that. how embarrassing is that? Well, yeah. To be honest, I take my hat off to you. Oh. I, I would not have the guts to do that. I would not have the guts to do that. I have no desire to throw myself out of a plane. In fact, I watch Celebrity SAS, Billy's programme, and, you know, I really enjoy it. And Fatima Whitbread, who we saw. Oh, God, to, yes. Oh, my God, she's a phenomenal. Kind of thing. And, of course, I am enjoying Matt Hancock. But <laughs> I watch it and I think I'm actually really happy. I don't know if it's an age thing or not. I have no desire whatsoever to do it. No. I look at these people and I think, go on yourself. I, but it wouldn't be me. I look at Billy. He's 58. And I think, Billy, how the... Can you be arsed with exactly. that anymore? I tell you, and I'm actually pleased that that's gone from me. You yeah, know, I think that certainly the older you get, the less desire you have to kind of put yourself through. Well, it was 16 years. No, no, about 14 years ago, I did total wipeout. I know you don't. Right. Know that no, no. Well, I think you talked about it at the yeah. time, oh. which was an assault course, which Nightmare. was like nothing compared to celebrity SES, and no. it was like a children's playground compared to SES. But at that age, so what age would I be? Early 40s or whatever. Yeah. I went into it. I genuinely thought I had a chance. 
I genuinely thought, yeah, what, what, not I, baking ribs or. I or, thought I'm a contender here. Oh my god! And I made such an arse of myself. Oh dear, I was really awful. But <laughs> now I have no desire to do it, and it's actually a really nice feeling that you just look at it and you think, do you know what? Yeah, I do not want to do that. No, <laughs> no. It takes a certain person, doesn't it? A driven person to yeah. actually want to do that. I thought the money, but there we are. Well, I don't, I don't even know if the You wouldn't do it for the money, would you, Kay? Even you. Even I. Even oh, I. Well, oh actually, Ted, well, we'll ask Billy what the money is. Because, <laughs> I mean, I'd get knocked out in the first week, get a wee trip to That'd Thailand. <laughs> Was it Thailand? Is that where it is? Yeah. That's quite nice this time nice. of year. Come I. to <laughs> Yeah, all right. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> um, did you say you'd been at a reunion? Oh, my God, yeah. So I was at um, BBC Reunion from people that I worked with uh, with people that I worked with in the 90s. So mm. we're talking like 30 years ago since I've mm. seen quite a lot of them. And the women look gorgeous. The men, there were a wee beer belly here and there. Oh, really? They hadn't, they, they hadn't sort of... They had not worn they'd well. let themselves go. They'd let themselves go. Okay, I had to say to this one, he's not over there. And then I was told, I was, oh my God, would not have recognised him. So... And how do you think you shaped up? Eh, absolutely up there. <laughs> Lots of compliments. <laughs> I did spend a lot of time putting the slap on, so it paid off. I know, paid you, off. you don't want to turn up to a reunion looking. If you have not seen somebody for 30 years, you want to kind of leave an impression, don't no, you? No, it's funny that I was with a friend in London the other week, Ross, that I went to university with. Oh, so we've known each other since yes. we were 17. And we were just really aware that when we said, oh, what about so-and-so? What's so-and-so up to? There's God. always that little thing yes. in your head. Are they dead? Exactly. <laughs> so you don't really want to say, what's ever happened to George? Oh, he's dead. Well, do you know what? There was, was a few of them. Was there? Yep. Yep. This is well, I shouldn't laugh about these things, but on the radio the other day, I was um, introducing Kiki D and Elton John, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Oh, my God. Oh, that's that's always a karaoke one, isn't it? Great old song. And, yes. and then, so the song was playing, da, 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 and I yeah. thought, Fucking hell, I wonder what happened to Kiki D. So just while the song was playing, I thought, I better Google. And then immediately you see whatever happened to, and I thought, oh, no, she's dead. But she's not. No, no. No, no, Kiki's no. alive. She's 76. She's living in Hertfordshire, and oh Ellen John God, sends right? an orchid every birthday. Oh, see, an so orchid? Quite, is that not a death thing? <laughs> well, it's not working because she's 76. <laughs> she's still alive. <laughs> she's still alive. Hard lines. The other person I had on the radio yes. was Simon Reeve. Now, you won't know who he is because you don't know who anyone is. Simon Reeve. No, but that doesn't ring a bell. He's known as one of the world's most adventurous travellers. So he's one of these guys who travels to the ends of the earth and does very sort of dangerous things. Jim Reeve. Very well known. And anyway, he told me in the course of the interview that he'd had what I love to call an epiphany. It's all right, everyone. I know it's really an epiphany. <laughs> but epiphany is a much more... <laughs> and we're going to stay with that. I'm using word. And he said, and I don't know whether they have this in common with Billy, He he had... A moment of revelation, I'll be serious, uh -huh. uh, when he was 17, he was a bit of a bad boy, brought up in urban London, going nowhere, getting uh -huh. into a bit of trouble. And anyway, for whatever reason, he found himself in Glencoe. I think he and a oh, mate right. had just buggered off, you off. know, on a bus. And he says he clearly remembers in Glencoe, just sort of looking around at the kind of vastness mm. of it. He just got this strong feeling that he needed to kind of change the direction oh my God. of his life. Oh, my God, from being in Glencoe? Yeah, and and, and and he has gone on to be the most incredible traveller. And, I mean, actually, really interesting guy, really sort of well-educated guy because of all of his travellings. And so I just thought that moment of revelation, have you had an epiphany? Have I 
to make you funny. <laughs> well, eh, let me just think. Certainly, certainly, when I went to see a financial advisor and they basically gave me license or basically said, you can actually leave work at the age of 60 and you will survive. You're not going to be on the, you know, Was on the Was Gloria Gaynor playing in the background? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You were there. And I thought, fucking hell, I actually can get out of the BBC. <laughs> I can leave. Oh, my God. And that was such a feeling, such a positive feeling that that was to me was, Christ, my life's just going to be so different. And it is. And I bloody love it. And you really felt that? Oh, my God, yes. To be told, I didn't trust my own kind of figures and going through them, but then to be told by a professional that actually, do you know what? You can leave and you'll be okay. Christ, seriously? Oh, my God, I'm going to do it. It was amazing. Did you do one of these funny little sidekicks as you came out of the building? Oh, God, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I know the ones you mean. You know, They're great. See, when you said what was a feeling, I really had to really sort of hold down Irene Cara. What a feeling, you know, from fame. <laughs> yes. And have you noticed this habit? It was Frankie Bridge, actually, on This Woman. I know you don't know who she is. It no, doesn't really no matter, idea. but she's very mm-hmm. well known, I can promise you. Right. And I, I was in a room and I went in and she said something I don't know about. Oh, it's a really nice day. And I said, lovely day, love it. He just started singing. And she said, oh. That is such an old person it's an age thing, thing to do. Oh, no. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you just say something, and then the old person in the room starts singing a song. I do that as well. Oh, my God. Is it then? It is. And I, I mean, I know I do it. Like, All that's the time. a nice dress, and you, you, you know, burst into, you burst into a song. Or, do you want a piece of cake? If I know you were coming, I'd be to cake. <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's just a cute little habit. And she went, no. It's, it's an age thing. It's old. Oh, my God. It's like a she noisy ruined, yawn. I know she ruined my life. <laughs> anyway, oh, listen, listen, we need to crack on. Right, I right. have got a fantastic uh-huh. email of the week. It really is a fantastic email of the week. I love these emails. I know, I know, I know. But first of all, just a quickie. Carolyn mm. McIntosh has been in touch and said, did you mention the name of the guy that you interviewed uh, reliving uh, in dementia care homes in the Ruth oh, yes, episode? Oh, yes, so, Carolyn, I know Stopped. what you mean. So his name is, it, he's Dutch, and the name is uh-huh. Tuan. P-U-E-N, Tobis. I don't know if I pronounced that, what my Dutch is like. And it's called The Housemates. So if you want to find it, it's Tuan Tobis and it's The Housemates. So there you go. Right, email of the week. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, always, always. This is a great tale. Bear with me. It's a great tale, okay? And then we're going to speak to uh, Billy. So good morning, Kay and Karen. Listening to how you two are approaching your 60s so differently to each other and with such candid honesty is liberating. It's a reminder that there is no rule book and has prompted me to share what I am up to. Great. Great. 62 today, she says, and I am travelling to India for seven weeks on my own. Oh my God. God, that is brilliant. I know. I've always loved being outdoors, she says, in any weather. Every Sunday growing up, we'd go walking in the hills north of Dundee, take a wee radio, listen to the top 20 countdown with a radio pressed against my ear. Do you remember that? I know. Yes. After a lifetime of jobs in public service, at the age of 60, I started a small dog boarding business. Oh, wow. Brilliant. With my husband, Nick. We got on great. Two boys are pretty much left home. And after 27 years together, he knows I appreciate a fair bit of alone time. Yes. Yes. Uh, I've never been stronger. I've never been fitter. Never been more excited about the future. I love the idea that our biological age is more important than our chronological age, which I think is a really good way of 
I, I think I think lots of people are changing to think that. Yeah. I do. So India, she says, whilst Nick and I do a lot together, his idea of a big adventure is to go to the Golf Open Championships. Oh, oh my God, hell. almighty. Oh, you think of anything God, I'm with you. I'm with you. Oh, my God. Yes. Anyway, Catherine, in, in the um, spirit of getting on with it, while I'm so well and fit, I've booked my adventure to India. I'm flying to Jaipur. On the 30th of February, 2024, for a seven-week stay. I'm staying in a hostel. Private room, though. Very wise. Oh, aye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think when you're 62. You you know what's going to happen there. Um, Volunteering with an animal rescue charity in the city, and then I'm travelling to Goa in the south of India to do a full-on touchy-feely yoga retreat for eight days. So I've got to say the yoga retreat is a bit more challenging than working with the street dogs. I don't (laughs) really like people touching me. You don't, no, 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 you don't, you don't no. wear it that way. Anyway. Listen, what I will say, Catherine, is bring a pillow slip with you, just because I'm sure the hostel's really clean, but you know what, I quite like a clean pillow slip, just to put You've over. never been further than Wales in a camper van, why are you advising her? I went round the world. Well, you were 27 at the time. I don't care, I still took a pillow anyway, slip with me. Anyway, shut up, we're Catherine, on Catherine's so proud email. of you, good for you, that's excellent. She says, anyway, I hope other women approaching this age or new phase in their own lives find new goals, personal challenges, and go forward optimistically. It's not over. Till it's over. With Beth wishes to you both, I look forward to my Friday morning dog walk every week with you too. Well, Catherine, I'm oh very delighted. God. You're That's with brilliant, us. isn't it? Isn't it? It's fantastic. Let us know how it goes. Belter of an email. It deserves a reward. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe that you're being so mean as we won't even churn out a bloody slab of tablet for these people. Shut up about the tablet. Do you know what? If you'd asked me in the first place before announcing it on air, then, well, I would have said to you up front, no, I haven't. Hey, I'm retired. I don't have the time to make tablet. But do you know what I think would be a better idea? Yours and my mugs on the side of a mug. Like oh, no, a who's of... going to want that? Well, do you know what? You'd be surprised. No. At least it'll last longer than a bit of tablet and better for your well, teeth as well. What about some of these pickled cucumbers? You must have like... I'm not sending anything in the post. A china mug. Okay, maybe not your photo. Maybe mine. Okay, <laughs> all right. Let's the go two for of that. us with that nice look of me looking at your crotch. Oh, actually, I want to speak about that later. Not yours, Billy's. Look forward to that. Keep the emails coming in. Podcast at htb60.com. We'll speak to Billy and his crotch after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Crotch rot or rot crotch? Which is it? And how long do you have it for? And what are the symptoms? It's like um, like nappy rash. Well, a baby would have nappy rash, you know, um, when you get the old sweat rashes. It's really sore. It's horrendous. Any anywhere where there's a crevice. Oh, why God. did we ask? I don't know. I thought we could maybe get sponsored by Sudacream. <laughs> no, I think you need something more than that. <laughs> I thought you were going to give him the suggestion about the banana skin. Oh, that's a point. But oh God, the banana skin wouldn't last long. I, I um, have a banana skin <laughs> in the past when I used to cycle, when I used to road cycle and you were doing a distance, you know, 50 miles or whatever, uh, a banana skin with a furry bit, peeled, obviously, the furry bit inside your shorts. And then you'd have to sort of change it maybe every couple of hours. The, the big problem was 
ditching the black one because it was then black when you took it out. But oh my God, it was it was comfortable and it was soothing. They've not mentioned that in the SAS, <laughs> Billy. No. So listen, Billy, at the moment, you're on a speaking tour of the UK, um, you know, telling people about your life and your experiences. And uh, I know that you're you're um, speaking to sell out houses. Did you ever imagine as a younger kid that your life would turn out this way? No. And I still even now think, how the hell did I end up in this position? But I mean, before I've got to where I am right now, I mean, I've had a, I've had a great time, great life. I've been very fortunate, very lucky as well. You know, the, from the upbringing that I, that I had, just to get in the army would have been enough for me. But then getting into the military, doing all the stuff I did. But more so, what does does amaze me? I look back and go, wow, did I really do that? You know, making the decisions that I did at the level I was, I got thrown out of school with no education, and I'm literally in places of sending information and making calls back to the UK to the government and telling them what we're going to do. And I'm like, how did I get to this position? I'm, I'm telling the prime minister or the the Cobra team what our country's going to do. And I'm, before I could even talk, I'm thinking, I got thrown out of school at 30 and I got no education. I came from a council estate in the West Midlands, but here I am. So they're the things that really surprise me or I think, wow, how did that happen? So even although, you know, obviously that was many years past between, you know, your childhood and those moments that you're in a position of massive responsibility, there was still that little voice in your head sort of reminding yourself where you kind of came from? Yeah, and I think that's important to always have that, you know, and you'll probably agree with me. As you get where I am now, you know, being recognised and all this sort of stuff, you just got to remember what your, what your roots really are. You, you you're different in many ways because of your experiences. That's you know that's the journey you've gone through. But you're still the same person. Well, as you say, the same person. But it isn't it interesting that the same person can go in one direction mm. or another direction? Because I mean, I think within your family, you know, you, you've got brothers who've gone in the other direction, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. You, 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 I have. But I mean, you just you know, you, you've got a. There's an element of luck to your life anyway, and. But, you know, the decision-making of where you end up and what you do is really down to you. You know, you can see when things ain't going right or, or are going right, you know, which avenue to follow. And that really is, you know, down to the individual. Mm. So what do you think in you took you down the right path? I think, you know, knowing from the age of nine, when I, these talks that I do, I knew from the age of nine what, what was right and wrong. You know, we've all... We've always been in this world where somebody will sort of make excuses for, if you like. You know, your mother will always go, no matter what trouble I go in, your mum will stand by you and go, my son got in with the wrong crowd. But the truth is, even from the age of nine, I knew I was the wrong crowd. I was the one that was being naughty. I knew what was wrong. I knew I shouldn't have been fighting. I knew I shouldn't have been stealing. I knew I shouldn't have been trespassing. But I still did it. And I think it's part of growing up. I think what what changes or what, what sort of shapes you is that the fact that if you own it, you know, you can still play the game and the numbers game of trying to get away with stuff. But you know, you know, when you get caught out, you get caught out. And when you, you do know at what point or at some time, you've got to find the right path and do the right thing. And what I used to do, and I don't know whether this is the middle child syndrome, but middle children are definitely different. We are different. We're definitely wired different. And I used to, even from the, that age of nine, I used to gravitate towards old people. I kind of knew. I'd see an old man playing, sitting on the bench reading a paper. You know, we'd be kicking a ball around. And I'd just go and sit with him. 
I mean, that doesn't seem to happen today, you know, because everybody apparently is a murderer or a rapist or something weird. Well, that's what, you know, is put out there. But I used to sit and talk to him and just knowing that this bloke is probably 70 years old. He's, he's been through that circle of life, you know, being in a relationship, out of a relationship, had money, no money, good times, bad times, darkness and all that. So I just, I'd listen to their, to their story and, and ask them about their life. And I did. I used to do it from such a young age. And then I think, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, he's, he's, I'm going to make some of them the same mistakes, but hopefully by talking to these people, I won't go down the totally wrong direction. And that's what I used to believe. And then that's kind of shame. It's where I, I, you know, ended up getting back on the right track, but not without a lot of help from going into the, the, the path that I did. I know I needed the military. I needed to be away from where I was growing up and the gangs that I was with, although it wasn't their fault, it was mine. But I just knew I needed that direction. I needed that discipline, and I needed some more focus and more challenges. What was your relationship with your mum and dad? Were you able to have those conversations with them? Yeah, brilliant. My me and my dad, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I've never, I, I've, my dad was, he's my hero, but, and uh, you know, the most influential man in my life. But he never seemed to have time for us, and you don't realise till you're a parent how difficult having time with your children really is, or. You want a lot more time, I believe, but you, you, you've got to go to work. You've got to do whatever. My dad worked 12-hour shifts virtually all his life, you know, and so when he when he was at home, you'd see him for a couple of hours and he'd go to bed. And then the weekend, if he had a, a day off, he'd go down the pub with his mates. And I remember from the age of 11, boxing in, in, around, the, around the county, you know, and I, I was a good little boxer, but he was never there. And I used to think, resenting for it and thinking, why, why don't, you know, what's this all about? And I wasn't really, to be honest, same as the football, it never came to the football, never really asked me too much about the cadets, where, where I was going. Although, you know, he'd make sure if I stepped out of line, I got put back in line. He was very disciplined. We never sat there and had the cuddle and go, tell me I love you sort of thing. None of that. He was, he was when he died and I realised what he did know about me and all the rest of it, and it was quite heartbreaking. But then I looked at him and I thought, what was my dad? And I just, I always describe him as, he was the ring of steel around our family. He was always trying to put the, the obviously put the food on the table. And he was always there for the family. He would never let, particularly my mom, was so protective of my mom uh, and us, you know. But he, he wouldn't stand for no nonsense. He was one of these, he, he, your leg could be hanging off and he'd say, you're still going to school. He'd make you go, you know. He was very, very disciplined. Quite a hard, hard guy, but. Yeah, a great guy. But after he died, I then realised, and well, I didn't. I found a box full of sort of mementos that he kept, and it was everything from when I was boxing as a kid that was in the the, the Ring magazine or in in the local paper. But we never discussed it, and I kind of kicked myself for that as well. Not me making time later on in life, uh, making the effort and sitting down with him. You know, I turn up quickly, have a beer with him, quick chat about nonsense, and off again. And I just wish I'd made more time. You know, now, I mean, I, I tell my kids I love them quite a lot. My dad never, ever said it once to me, I don't think. And if I that is a lie, I do remember actually saying it to him. And because I kind of felt, you know, my mum was dying. I knew she was dying. I thought he probably won't be long after her, although he weren't in the worst of health at the time. And I remember saying it to him and he looked at me like I'd punched him in the face. <laughs> he was like, what? I said, oh, you know, dad, I love you. And I, I couldn't even say it to him. It was just how it was. It was just the way that generation was and the way we, we grew up that way, you know. He loved us to bits, you know, protected us, but it wasn't that like we are now, cuddly, sort of 
quite open about spending more time and talking with your kids. So you've got six children. What's the age span of of your kids? 35 to 14. So some children to your first marriage, I'm guessing, maybe? Yeah, I have three daughters with my first marriage, a daughter I saw in my second relationship and a, a daughter with a third relationship. So how was it then? I mean, how different a dad were you than your own dad was to you? How easy was it you then to for you to show your feelings to your to your girls to your children? I, I just I was just always more open with them. You know, the the thing I I, I didn't do, which I, I you know, I kind of regret, but again, I'm not making excuses. A lot of it, it was through my time of being in the regiment. We were away all the time, you know. So I kind of wish I'd have spent a little bit more time, but I did, you know, spend time with them and. and you know, told them I loved them and did things with them as much as I could. Whenever I was on, I'd be out with them, make sure the downtime was spent with the kids, you know. But a lot of the time, that that time of having the kids and, and uh, them growing up and going through school, I was away a hell of a lot of time, you know, from nine, 19, uh, sort of 86 onwards with the parachute regiment and then with, with the SAS, particularly with the SAS, uh, we did the classic, you know, you gone away for 10 days and came back five months later. It was mental. So where did you learn an emotional language then? Because, I mean, certainly, obviously, through television, something like Celebrity SAS, you know, you're always barking at people <laughs> and telling them to fucking shape up and God knows what. You know, there's not a lot of touchy-feely stuff there. Um, and I know that's television, and I don't know what it's like in the, the military for real, but you know, it seems harsh and hard, and people aren't allowed to fail because that's weakness. And so I don't, where's the opportunity there to learn an emotional language, or do you just have to switch off and be like an automaton, like a robocop? Yeah, it's not so much like a robocop, but you compartmentalize everything, all your emotions, you know, your, your life, your binge, your life, you, you, you compartmentalize your sort of family, love lives, you know, softness into, depending on what you're doing. And this all came through the time spent in the military, you know, being away all the time and seeing some of the stuff that we saw and the disasters and, and the cruelty and the suffering particularly, you know, and you realize how what you did learn through the military was how important life really is and how, how short a time we've got. You literally did. And, and what is important to you? What is important? It's not it's not materials. It's not how many people like it, all that nonsense. It's your, your own person, your own health, your family's health and the people around you that love you, spending time with them as best you could. So all that came from there, from seeing what I saw, you know, in the places like Bosnia, um, Macedonia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and seeing the innocent people having their lives taken away from them at such a short time or the ones that, you know, suffered through through war and conflict and natural disasters. So just seeing suffering sort of made, not made me soft, but made me realise, you know, you've got to, it's not a bad thing to show emotion and show and realise what is important. So what was your driving purpose then? I, lots of people would run a mile from the situations that you found yourselves in because you, your life was at risk on in many occasions. What makes you put yourself in that situation of of grave danger for somebody else? Because honestly, I truly believed in everything that we did and it was to make the world a better place. This situation is not about me. It's a, You know, I, I, I say to me, I went into places... Countries I, I, I didn't even know, people I don't know, but I'm in there putting my life, sacrificing my life, my time, my my everything to save their lives because I felt it was the right thing to do. 
You know, that's what you're there to make a difference, to stop the the, the suffering of other people. Because I think it makes a difference all around the world. And, and that's what it was. I really believed in what I was doing and, and making a difference for the greater good. I'm thinking about little Billy, you know, whose life, as you described it, was a bit chaotic and you kind of didn't know what you were up to and you didn't really have those boundaries because your mum and dad were just working too hard to be able to put them in. Do you think it was the antidote to that? Because in the military, you found a purpose, you found the discipline, you know, and you found a strength in yourself. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, the, the military is a family. And I love my family. Family was great. But it, it was such a close-knit family in the military. And you kind of being sort of guided and, and directed and, and put on the right track in a more sort of uh, disciplined way than the family life that I had, you know. I was allowed to get away with stuff and do whatever I wanted. I abused it. In the military, you, you can't do that. And you, you do really have to rely on, on each other. And you find yourself in situations, like as a kid, you know, yeah, I was in danger. I nearly lost my life twice when I was a kid, you know, getting stabbed and falling into a caustic soda and all that sort of nonsense and falling through roofs, whatever. But, you know, the, the, those sort of things that happen a few and far between in the military – particularly in conference, every every single day was a possibility of losing your life. And you soon start to realise, you know, how important that person next year is and how you need that tight-knit family to look after each other. And what about in terms of relationships then, uh, Billy? Because you, you said you've had three marriages. Yeah. Was it difficult to maintain relationships when you've got the kind of life that you had? It was, yeah, it was. It, I, I, you know, again, not making excuses. It, I could have worked hard, it could have been bad, but it wasn't. I, I just... You know, there was a lot of stress. I got married very young. Um, you know, she was a great person, great woman. And I, I just, and we didn't want the same things in life. You know, when I did come home, the time I wanted to come, she didn't want to, she just wanted to pass the kids to me and go, get, get on with it. I've been with them all the time. Like, I've understood that. But I was moving faster and wanted to go different places. And she, she didn't want to, and it just didn't work. And the second one was different. You know, you kind of think, right, this has got to be it. This is going to be it. And no, we just wanted different things in life. Well, I definitely did. I was just, you know, I wanted to get on, move on, move, move on, keep moving, keep doing things. And so, what's so different about marriage three? I'm older. I'm not as wild anymore. You know, I'm not chasing the wild dreams of being on operations or wanting to break records or do all these crazy things. Now, I think I'm just older and just wiser. I think. And realize, like I say, what is really important, and it is relationships. I think deeper about situations and things that I get involved in, whereas before it'd be, oh, yeah, let's do it, let's get on with it, not really thinking about the consequences. Now it's more a thought process about everything that I get involved in, everything I, I do. Yeah, I'm not, not afraid to say, you know, I am an emotional person. I know I come across on TV as whatever, a bit harsh and brutal, but that, I think that that, I, that is who I am. I don't just, that's not just for the cameras, that's who I am. When I'm, I'm passionate, I'm a very passionate person. When I'm like running that course or doing it, I want the best out of these people. I've been through that process twice. I've also been on both sides of the process. Put, you know, being the person being pushed to the limits, physically, mentally, and emotionally, through the both, you know, in the parachute regiment, then in the military, and I've also been back as an instructor to push free people through it. So what I do now, when when I am training and teaching people, I'm still in it. It's, it's, it means a lot to me. This is not just a TV program. I'm literally trying to get the best out of these people. And to me, when I see the, see the better version of that person at the end of that course, 
It's like, it's better than a paycheck. I feel right. I've helped that person become a better person. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I give it everything I've got. I'm very passionate. But I also, you know, as an example, when we're in the mirror room, you call it the interrogation room, it's the mirror room. When people come out with their stories, we have no idea that's coming out. We've got no idea what we're going to talk about. When somebody's talking about, you know, losing a child or the wife's hung herself, you like, jeez. I mean, deep in the back of my head, I'm going, what the mm. fuck? I don't know how to deal with that. I'm no psychologist. And all I do then is flick back to the horrible traumas that I, unfortunately I have been involved in. And again, it comes down to the same thing. Something that's happened, something that's already already history. Horrible thing that is. Somebody got killed next to me or with me or whatever it is. And there's their situation when it comes out. That emotion, I had to hold it back like I did back then. And because I've been through that process so many times, I'm able to do that. But inside, it's, it's all duck syndrome. On the top of the walls, you look all cool and calm and collective. Inside, my fucking heart's racing. My head's gone, Jesus Christ. I almost want to cry for this person. I know you lost a very good friend to suicide. How did this affect you? Still does. I just can't get my fucking head around it. It still does. I mean, we, we talk about this a lot. Because um, I don't understand how, why. I mean, I've been in dark places. I've, I've felt like taking my life. I ain't going to lie. Uh, and But you just sort of, hang on a minute. You, you take Everybody, I think, takes that moment and go, stop. This is very selfish. This is how I felt. I'm not saying this is the answer by any means. I just felt this is very selfish. I've got kids that love me. I've got family that love me. I've got friends that love me. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a mess for these people. And when my friend took his life, you know, he had kids and stuff, and I was like, I, I did the eulogy, and I just, I got angry. I got very fucking angry. You know, I was very sad that it happened. But the other thing I'm sad about and guilty about is when somebody's in a, a space line and do and, and take their life, there's always a sign. There is always a sign. And and most of us fail to pick up on it because it's, it's not a sign of I'm going to commit suicide. It's just something different about the person that you go, hang on a minute. And as an example, that guy who I'm not going to mention his name, of course, he... He called me out the blue. We've been best mates for years and years. I don't know even have his phone number, but we're best mates. I know as soon as he picks me up, the conversation will last 10 seconds. And it'll be, hey, boy, I haven't seen you for a while. Which pub are we meeting in? And we'll go and meet and we'll catch up 30 years of talking and all the rest of it, whatever it is. And then I had a phone call from him out the blue, and he was just – he went on for 20 minutes for a start. and thought, that, that's what is, what's going on here? And he was being nice to me. He's never been nice to me. He is, but, it, 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 you know, the dark humor of the military. And he, he was like – I thought, this is weird. And I remember putting the phone down after him thinking, I need to go and see him. Something's not right. And I didn't go and see him because I always say, I'll do it tomorrow like we all do. And I wish I'd have done it. And I didn't do it. And then I find out later on, he, the same sort of incident, he talked to another good friend of ours and another one and same weird thing. And then it was too late. It was just too late. And like I so said, when I did the eulogy, I remember I was like everybody else. I was sad. I was emotional and it was awful. And then my sadness, my emotion, as I walked up past this coffin and stood in the eulogy and looked down, saw his kids, went to pure anger. And it's tough. You know, we still talk about it now. I mean, well, I mean, we've spoken about emotional language, haven't we? And and that your your dad, like many of his generation, just didn't have it and you kind of had to learn it. And and we do know that suicide rates amongst men are much greater than they are in women, particularly middle-aged, uh, well, guys of all ages. Um and probably it does go back to that, doesn't it? Just so many men just don't have the emotional mm-hmm. 
tools because they haven't been worked on. Yeah, it's true. We haven't got the tools, but I think men just, you know, it's just got this thing about you've, you've got to be tough. You've got to deal with it yourself. And I, I deal with my own shit to myself. But I actually tell people on stage now, I say, listen, people say to me, well, you've done all these things with SAS, you've saved all, you've done this, you've rescued, whatever. I said, that's courage and brave and been bravery. I said, no, it's not. The bravest thing I could ever do is in a time of darkness is reach out and talk to somebody. That's brave. Admitting I can't deal with this. I need help. And I have a re- reached out to my wife when you feel down and down. And she picks up on it straight away. My way of dealing stuff and some, you know, a smell, a sound, some little trigger, a sad moment. And it's, I'll just go quiet. I'll go and grab it, you know, have a drink, put a bit of soft music, daft music on or whatever. And that's my moment. But she recognizes that. But when I need to talk about it, I'll talk about it. And I just say to people, talk about it. Try and deal with it yourself, of course. But as soon as you really can't, reach out. Reach out to somebody, your partner or, or a specialist, and just say, hey, I'm having a tough time here. Don't be afraid. That, that's that's courage and bravery. Admitting, you know, I'm vulnerable, I need help. So without being morbid, you know, in terms of like how you'd like to be remembered, it's not as the tough guy. No, not at all. I'm the guy who made mistakes, admitted it, and turned his life around, and then left the planet doing better things. That's what I'd be like to remember that. So, what do you want from this next stage of your life, then, Billy? I want to keep going. I want to. I take. Listen, people say to me, "Why do you still get up and run? Why do you do this?" Because I can. It hurts. I don't like it, but I can because I know, in a very short period of time, I won't be able to. And I say a short period of time is because you like, you know, you, you look, I know it's been used many, many times, but life's a runway and it is, and I'm using somebody else's words, I guess, but it's true. As a kid, you look down this runway and it goes on forever and ever and ever. Before you know, you're in mid twenties and you're kind of midway down the runway, but you feel, ah, oh, I've got plenty of time to change my life and do shit. Now I'm just about to fucking take off. I don't know when that's going to take off. We're at the end of that runway. So I want to keep doing as best as I can. I support my wife with all the charity stuff we do and the work we do. And I'll, I'll just keep giving and giving, giving back till I can, because we should. Listen, <laughs> uh, let's play go. Give me a number between 1 and 60. 1 and 60, 58. Uh, money no object, what car would you drive? Howdy, an Audi Q7. Nice Sounds car. nice, sounds nice. Okay, another number. 22. Uh, <laughs> 60 role model. So is that, who's your 60 role model? Yeah, so somebody in the 60 plus age bracket, who would you like to kind of aspire to? Emulate, aspire yes. to. Who's your role model? Fatima Whitbread. God. Isn't she oh, incredible? She is. My God. And what an humble, brilliant person she is, you know? And we didn't, you know, I knew Fatima growing up, probably like you guys did, you know, javelin fry, blah, 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 fantastic. That's all I knew. And then when we had her on the show, me and Foxy sat in the uh, mirror room with him, did the mirror, and they normally only about 40 minutes. I mean, it's 40 minutes of interviewing and talk. He was like, sat with your grandmother. I could have sat with her all night. Me and Foxy were there for an hour and a half, and they're like trying to pull it, pull us out, not her out. She was just amazing and just so detailed about her life and what she remembers, mm-hmm. but so humble and so forgiving. I couldn't get through the, the hardships that woman's been through. I mean, look at her now, right? When I say about the show, I love it because it does make people a better person. I'm not trying to say it made Fatima a better person, but Fatima, it's given a new kick in life. Look at her. That, she's got back into her fitness. She's doing amazing. She's, she's, she's freaking <laughs> getting younger. 
Well, Kate, there's a note in for you. It uh, makes you a better person. <laughs> oh, well, I'll take more than that. Um, <laughs> Billy, listen, uh, thanks so much for giving us your time and I hope you enjoy the rest of your, your speaking yeah, tour. I yeah. know you've got a whole load of dates coming up between now and Christmas, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We finish the end of November and then we go back to the States first week of December. Right, okay. Very nice. Um, I'm sure it'll be a brilliant night. If you're up in Scotland, come and see us. If you see a, a slightly strange woman with Nordic walking poles, Billy, <laughs> you'll know who it is. <laughs> the crotch problem of banana skin hanging out of her ass on four hours. That's me. That's the one. <laughs> Bye, Billy. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye. Bye. Mission accomplished, and he didn't tell us Muppets to shut up once. Next week on How To Be 60, we're joined by the irrepressible presenter of the great British menu, Andy Oliver. Oliver.